in the depth of what he suffered, he suffered abandonment, separation. He was separated from God's favor and blessing that no such separation lies in as a prospect for us in our future. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 85, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Well, do you have the Apostles' Creed memorized? Can you recall how many times you've probably recited it in times of worship in your church growing up uh, and still do today? It's a beautiful creed uh, passed down through church history all the way up to the present time. But if there's any article of the creed that some in the church may struggle with, it's our expressing the words he, meaning Christ, descended into hell. What exactly does that mean? And should we even be saying it? Sitting down together are Dr. Cornelis Venema and Dr. J. Mark Beach to help us gain further insight into this important document and this particular line in it. The article in the Apostles' Creed, He Descended into Hell, has been the subject of some discussion throughout the centuries, but continues to be the subject of some discussion primarily because there have always been historically differing views as to what is being affirmed, what's being confessed. And in the modern period, there have been any number of writers, Lutheran, Reformed, others, who have been maintaining that because there's not a consensus respecting the meaning of the article, it should perhaps be deleted. We should no longer confess it. I want to just say as a preliminary observation, that's a fairly radical thing to do. If we can find and express the meaning of this article in a way that reflects the teaching of Scripture, I think the argument to remove the article is rather drastic because this is a confession more perhaps than any other of the ecumenical creeds that are confessed both East and West and throughout the a good portion of the history of the church, the same confession has been made in terms of this article. So rather, we should do something like what the Heidelberg Catechism does in question and answer 44, give a a very beautiful and scripturally substantiated statement of what this article is expressing regarding Christ's state of humiliation and what he suffered in the course of his Uh, being under condemnation and death as our substitute, bearing the consequences of our sin, even suffering hellish agony, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. And as is typical of the Catechism, it ties in what our Lord endured and what this article confesses regarding what our Lord endured with our comfort. We know Christ having endured hellish agony, separation from God, suffering the pains, terror, and hellish agony. This is question and answer 44 in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, in Lord's Day 16. This means that what he suffered in our place, we need not suffer, nor even in our deepest distresses and afflictions in this life are we to think of those as the kind of hellish agony under God's curse that our Lord endured. Now, I have to go back to my comment about differing views. Uh, If nothing else is said in the course of our podcast today, 
The one thing I'd like to commend to listeners is a little book by Daniel R. Hyde in a series published by Reformation Heritage Books. It has the title, In Defense of the Dissent, a response to contemporary critics. It's a very short, concise, comprehensive in its treatment of the question. Defense, as his subtitle indicates, or his title indicates, of retaining the article. And he basically argues for a double significance in terms of what it expresses. And he refers to two distinct reform views. One is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the other one in catechisms, the other in the question and answer that I just referenced from the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's interesting that the original meaning of the article— It was an article added somewhat late in the formulation of the Apostles' Creed that took place over a number of centuries in the period of Rufinus, and in the Latin, it's discended in inferna, or descended into hell. And it had the meaning that is expressed and confessed in the Westminster Standards that our Lord, in the context of his suffering, his death, burial— in his atoning sacrifice for his people, that he was buried. He truly died. And so the descent into hell is really, uh, if you were to paraphrase the expression, was his descent into an experience of being in a state of death, in the separation of body and soul. He's in the tomb for three days. He truly died. In that sense, the Westminster Confession is following what was really the original meaning of the article, a very simple meaning. And in some ways you could argue, well, that's a redundancy because the the canon, uh, the Apostles' Creed has already said that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. It doesn't add anything further. And it's at that point where he, that is Hyde, defends what he calls a second, the one represented in the Heidelberg Catechism, and you find it in Calvin, you find it in writers prior to Calvin in the 14th and 15th centuries upon whom Calvin is in part relying, that we should take the article as a kind of, for lack of a better word, since I'm a theologian, I'm allowed to use these words, uh, it's kind of ep- exegetical. I, I express it this way. It doesn't say more than the previous articles say, if they're rightly understood in terms of the Scripture's teaching regarding Christ's atoning sacrifice, but it captures the depth dimension of all that which he suffered, so that classically in the Reformed tradition, this is regarded as an article referring to the last step or aspect feature of Christ's state of humiliation. And by depth dimension, when Christ was crucified, though innocent, the just for the unjust. When he took upon himself, was made to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. When he, in the midst of his dereliction and abandonment upon the cross, separation from God's favor, subjection to the curse, darkness settles over all the earth as a kind of symbolic marker that where he was, incomprehensible though that may be to us, in the depth of what he suffered, he suffered abandonment, separation. You could even use the word excommunication, as old forms for the Lord's Supper put it. He was separated from God's favor and blessing that no such separation lies in as a prospect for us in our future. 
he took it away. He vanquished and overcame sin, death, and hell. Uh, he defeated it for those who are through union with him, participant in the blessings that are theirs because of what he suffered. So Hyde's basic argument, and I agree with it entirely, is that we don't have to choose for what the Westminster Confession affirms. It's certainly true, and it belongs to the meaning of the article in its original insertion into the creed. But I particularly favor what the catechism says because, again, it captures the real core of what our Lord suffered. Now, people will often object, even in Reformed churches, that, well, if it comes after a series of articles that describe what are commonly referred to as steps in Christ's humiliation, doesn't that suggest, in terms of the sequence of the articles, that he first suffered, was put to death, crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, and then thereafter, subsequent to chronologically, those steps, the way the, the creed is ordered in terms of the articles, the common complaint is that that implies something distinct, and not only distinct in meaning, but distinct chronologically that follows after. And it's an interesting point. I don't think it has to be, uh, I don't think it's a insuperable argument if you, as I've suggested, take the article as a summative article that really gets at the core of what our Lord suffered in all that he suffered in the whole of his state of humiliation from conception onward in the course of his entire ministry. He fulfilled all righteousness, and part of that was his in his state of humiliation under the law, enduring condemnation and death, suffering hellish agony on our behalf. Part of, part of the interest there is, and I haven't gotten to alternative views, because there are alternative views to the two I've identified that are biblical, uh, and those alternative views principally are the Roman Catholic view historically, which understands this article to refer to something that Christ did in his soul, his body laid in the grave, in the period intermediate between death and resurrection on the first day, when he went to what is called the limbus patrum, uh, the place of the dead, believing saints, those who believed in the Lord of the covenant and were saved, but were awaiting for Christ's coming and for the fullness of his work to be accomplished. And he comes to declare his victory and the reality of the work he's performed in declaring it is finished and to release, in a manner of speaking, and to carry these saints with him ultimately into glory. And they, they'll base that on a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about Christ's descent, most notably a very controversial and difficult passage to interpret, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and following. Whether we'll have time to get into that passage or not in this podcast remains to be seen, but... Um, the passage in short form doesn't support their view, but it's a view that often appeals to that passage for this kind of Roman Catholic understanding. The other, the other, the last primary view historically is the Lutheran view, which is held somewhat loosely. The formula of Concord affirms it, but also admits that there are differences of opinion and we mustn't be too dogmatic about it. But they appeal to Luther's view that it belongs to in a manner of speaking, the first step of his exaltation, uh, subsequent to his state of humiliation. The last step in the state of humiliation is, is his burial. But with his 
descent into hell, that's language descriptive of Christ, not going to the limbus patrum to release saints who have died and were waiting for Christ's coming and his saving work, but he simply goes, it's a, it's a triumphant procession and declaration heralding on Christ's part of his victory over the powers of darkness and death, hell, Satan himself and the principalities and powers, and a kind of a prelude or preparatory to his resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. Uh, this is Mark Beach. Uh, I affirm and agree with everything uh, Dr. Venema Cornell has just uh, been uh, talking about uh, regarding uh, Daniel Hyde's book, The in defense of the dissent. Just a couple of comments there for listeners. Obviously, a podcast can't cover all this turf in great depth, but this short book, it's under 90 pages or so. It, after the introduction, he deals with contemporary critics of this article and then surveys uh, historically uh, how this article's been developed and interpreted and explores various views, including, as Dr. Minima mentioned, uh, uh, explaining the reform view, which he's just done. He also has a chapter that treats the benefits of, ret of retaining this article. So, again, to commend that book for listeners, because uh, it can do more than a podcast can do. However, to address a slightly different question, if the concern is that because the reform don't uh, agree with a sequential, chronological, literal, physical uh, descent of Christ into a physical hell. Therefore, we're confessing something in the Apostles' Creed that's illegitimate. Well, there's several comments I think are in order in regard to that. Uh, as Dr. Venema has already indicated, how we interpret that versus a strict chronology, but a more epigetical understanding. That, I think, is helpful. But if you're going to start tinkering with the Apostles' Creed, which reflects our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, we're not saying in the Apostles' Creed that all Christians in Christendom confess those articles in an identical way. So my point is, you could go down the list from, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, there's various and variant views within Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, for that matter, uh, on the full scope and meaning of God the Father and the nature of Trinitarian theology. And Christology, too. We all affirm the Incarnation that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but there's different conceptions of what being conceived by the Holy Spirit is about. There's different conceptions of what it means that he suffered and was crucified and dead and buried. There's different conceptions of what his atoning death involves and how you specify that and articulate that and explore the dimensions of it. And you could continue with... Uh, the meaning of Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints. I mean, my point is rather obvious and simple. You can actually argue that we Protestants and Roman Catholics and the 
the wide uh, tradition of Christendom argue and articulate the Articles of the Apostles' Creed in distinct and diverse ways, but nonetheless, there's an overall unity of faith surrounding them. So, it seems a little unhelpful to just pick on the descent into hell when uh, each article requires the church to be responsible in exegeting the full scope and meaning of such an article. Yeah, if I may piggyback on that, the main burden of my argument in class when I deal with this question in the course on the doctrine of Christ's person and work is do the confessions, that is the Reformed confessions, in their exposition, as Mark just said, they they expound further. Well, how do we understand the article? And they do so by way of an appeal to Scripture. These are the scriptural motifs or themes that this particular article express. And um, the burden of my argument with this argument with the students, it's not that we're arguing together, but I'm trying to make the case that the article should be retained and it expresses biblical teaching, is that it's a, it's a beautiful article as it's set forth, particularly as I said earlier in the, um, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it captures irrefutably profound, albeit, as I said earlier, mysterious and sobering feature of what our Lord endured. And that is, no one can deny that if you were to uh, canvas the New Testament scriptures, unless you reject the idea of a vicarious atonement altogether, or any notion of Christ enduring uh, punishment and making a, a propitiatory sacrifice or an expiatory sacrifice, that he was cast away into outer darkness. There's a reason he recoiled in the Garden of Gethsemane at the prospect of drinking the cup according to the Father's will. That can be easily misunderstood. That's why I use the language of mysterious and as well sobering. It's not as though the Father despised his Son, never loved him more when he, even in this most extraordinary sense, delivered him over, did not spare him. And the Son was not enduring involuntarily. He expresses his readiness to drink that cup, if need be. But the cup that he's drinking, that he's drinking, you might say, to the uttermost, is nothing less than the being cast away, with the excommunication that I talked about earlier, the endurance of what all sinners deserve by virtue of God's truth and justice, and that is to be banished from God's presence, to endure separation from his favor, not to experience the light of his countenance, but to be plunged into an outer darkness. And again, as I said earlier, the testimony of the New Testament in the context of our Lord's cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is that at those words were uttered in the context of darkness having settled over the whole earth for a period of three hours. And that can only be explained as a direct sign of God's handiwork. God's hand was in it. Something was taking place here that is too profound to, to be able to express it in words. And then, you know, the, the Heidelberg is so deliberate in pointing this article to 
it is an expression of our faith, this undoubted Catholic Christian faith we hold. So why would it add this phrase, he descended into hell? Well, just to be reassured of what it says and reminded, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, that happens to us, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Whatever you want to say about the chronology of the creed and maybe some problems that seem to emerge from that, the content of the exposition of the article is articulated here in the Heidelberg Catechism is critical for Christian living and the Christian life, and it has this note of assurance and help and comfort in the trials and struggles of the Christian life. Because Christ experienced this hell for us on the cross, we as his people are thereby saved from it. Comforting words contained in the Apostles' Creed and a good reminder of Christ's work for us. Next time, our good doctors discuss preparatory grace and preparationism. Is there any sense in which God in his providence prepares his people for conversion? Tune in next time to hear Dr. Venema and Dr. Beach's thoughts on that issue. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.